Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Betrayal Group. We are a national agency focused on encouraging bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, we will be speaking with Bob Carter, CEO of Carter International, a fundraising consultancy based in the United States and former chair of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. We will also be joined by Jocelyn Daw from J.S. Dawn Associates in Calgary and by Sharon Batch, a fundraising leader from Edmonton. Today's topic is fundraising in the era of Trump, and as you can imagine, this topic gave us more than enough to talk about. It's all coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. Our first podcast, recorded a few weeks ago, is Fingers Crossed, being posted later this afternoon. Welcome to Episode 2 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. What a panel! We have a terrific group with us today. With us is Jocelyn Daw. Jocelyn is a well-known and respected consultant based in Calgary. I've known Jocelyn for the last 12 years, and I have known of her ever since I became a fundraiser. Thanks, Jocelyn, and welcome. Jocelyn, your bio says you're a leading expert in the evolution of authentic tri-sectorial partnerships. I I think I know what that is, but can you say hello and tell us just what that means? Hello, uh, and it's great to be part of this, Vincent, and thanks for including me. Um, well, you know, today's topic is about philanthropy, but, uh, you know, in fact, um, philanthropy is just a means to an end. And at the end of the day, what uh, I work with organizations, whether it's business, nonprofit, even government, um, it's all about achieving mission and addressing social issues. And philanthropy, well, is important. It's only really one tool in which to do that. And I think one of the growing tools as we look at the fact that both um, our challenges are actually bigger than what they were 10 years ago, uh, the fact that there isn't an organization, a government, a business that has enough to address these problems that we all face. We live in a closed-loop world um, alone. We have to start thinking differently about how we're going to achieve mission. And one of the key ways about, uh, of doing that is working across sectors, uh, across boundaries to really come together around collective visions of addressing a problem at scale, uh, well, at it, well, as well as achieving individual goals and, and issues with really the idea of trying to work differently rather than in the traditional business as, uh, as usual approach. So a lot of the work that I'm involved in now um, is around helping organization achieve mission, but by using the power of partnerships as well as the power of looking at business and business being a means of which you can address a social issue as well as generate a profit. Thanks, Jocelyn. Welcome. Also joining us is Sharon Batch. Sharon lives in Edmonton, and I've known her my entire fundraising life. She's a caring and thoughtful friend. She's also a leader in fundraising and perhaps best known as the developer of AtEase fundraising software. What most people likely do not know about Sharon is that she is a passionate and actually quite well-known in certain circles gardener. Thanks for joining us today, Sharon. 
What is it about gardening that you love so much? Well, I think I like the peacefulness of it um, and the fact that you can create your own environment. And when we travel, I love to go and see gardens or to enjoy the the foliage. Um, we're just in the Amazon, and it looked like somebody had planted it. It was just so beautiful. But you can you can bring forward some really beautiful things. It's very peaceful. It's the work that you put in that uh, brings forward the results that you see. And the nice thing about it is it's there for so many months, and then you get a totally different look, and you can have birds, and you can have uh, just a lovely place to sit and uh, join, jo- enjoy yourself and your family. And uh, I find it incredibly relaxing. That's awesome. Well, I love gardening, too. Did you ever know Lois Hole? I certainly did. I chaired a, a gardening conference um, way back, I think it was in about 1993, and uh, she was the uh, the keynote speaker, or the speaker for our dinner. But what we did is we did it as a conference, and um, or as a conference, it was a conference, but as, um, like, let me see, what was that show called, um, where you have a builder, and he talks, and he brings all the different specialists in. So we had a professor emeritus in landscape gardening from the university, and he was the um the uh, the the head person that brought all of the other specialists up and uh it was absolutely fabulous so we created this gigantic garden we had shade areas we had herb areas we had roses and then this garden was developed with all these different specialists coming forward and talking about it in the in the uh joint session and then everybody went out and did other things and then we finally ended up with Lois Hole and we had um can never remember his name. P.J. Perry. P.J. Perry is a Juno Award-winning musician. We had him play at our dinner and uh, for the dance, and he said he's never ever uh, seen a group like this in his life because at ten o'clock everybody disappeared. Their gardeners they go to bed early. <laughs> That's great. Now, for those of you on our listening audience, Lois Hole was the Lieutenant Governor of Alberta, also Chancellor of the University of Alberta, but most importantly to the world population a global gardener of true renown. In fact, when she was chancellor at the U of A, um, we used to actually have to schedule time for the Japanese gardening enthusiasts who were there on a gardening tour to visit with the chancellor. And so uh, that, that's Lois Hole. Rounding out our panel today, all the way from Florida, we're thrilled to have Bob Carter join us. Uh, welcome, Bob. Bob is the current CEO of Carter, an international fundraising consultancy, he is also the former chair of the Association of Fundraising Professionals and was president of Ketchum USA when it had over 200 associates. Bob is also a lifelong Republican, so I'm very interested to get his take on the topic today. But first, Bob, you're in D.C. today. What brings you to the U.S. Capitol region? Um, well, we have uh, we have client work here, and uh, we're actually I'm uh, chairing the search for a new CEO for AFP International, so we're I have some meetings there, and thanks for inviting me to be on this uh, broadcast today. I'm delighted to be to be a part of that. I'm also the only member of my family who's ever left the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area, so I uh, I do sneak back in here occasionally under the radar. I've been out of this area for forty, uh, well, so a lot of years, I guess now, and uh, but I like to get back here for a lot of different reasons. I'm the immediate past chairman of the board of the National Aquarium here. Also, so I have a committee meeting also with that group up this way. So uh, that's a fantastic yeah. aquarium, Bob. Yeah, thank you. Truly, yeah. one of the world treasures. They do, 
Yeah, they do a great job over there. It was an honor to be uh, to be a part of that, and they still raise money from me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you, know, you know how that goes. I do know how that goes. I do know how that goes. Well, thank you all for joining us on this, our, our second podcast. It's been, if I'm, if my math is right, 77 days since Donald Trump became President Trump. Uh, this administration has been developing policy at a, at a feverish pace. And not a few of these have, have had both intended and unintended consequences for philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Our, our theme today is philanthropy in the era of Trump. And I want to open this up to our panel and I want to begin, uh, with, with, with our, with our, our lone American on the panel, Bob. You know, what, what are your thoughts? What are your, what's your, what's your read on the landscape? Uh, well, I, I like to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, having <clears throat> put, I try to put all these things in perspective. And if I take a look at things in the long term, uh, and I, there was a great, uh, video that was produced by a, uh, a college professor a number of years ago, and I saw it on a lot of international flights. My business is international, so I get to look at uh, videos or do a lot of work on airplanes, and it was called We Survive Our Presidents. And uh, it, was really <laughs> good to, it was really good to watch that because it went through all the presidencies, and it gave like three minutes on, on all of them. And you got a real taste of how, how good and how bad it's been. And... Uh, you know, the good news is nothing is forever uh, in terms of presidencies. And I came into the fundraising business under Richard Nixon. Um, and I am in, not a crook. I'm not 19, a crook. In 1968, and uh, I was, uh, you know, minding my own business, teaching British and American literature, and the head of the school asked me if I would start their development office because I could write letters, and I was pretty well known by the alumni at that school, having been an athlete and so on. So I did that, and um, I've watched impact of, of things, uh, including tax law, including attitudes of the White House and Congress change and the, the Senate change and all that sort of thing in the U.S. perspective. Uh, and I've also uh, done business all around the world, and I know how people react to what the U.S. does in terms of the benchmark of the federal tax deduction and so on. So, uh, you know, I'm putting it all in perspective. There are two sides to this story. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, in my role with AFP, I spent a good deal of time, uh, working with the White House liaison, Jonathan Greenblatt, and trying to prevent the Obama administration from reducing the tax deduction from 35% to 28%. Uh, which they never happened, made principally because of the coalition lobbying effort. And, uh, here we are again with an initiative to reduce the cap, to, uh, create a cap, uh, on, uh, the all deductions, uh, federal deductions of $200,000 on the part of the Trump administration. So we've been battling this. I've been battling this for the last 12 years directly in the White House and on Capitol Hill. Uh, so every administration, the last two administrations coming in have been uh, actually attacking the federal tax deduction as a means to do budget, the balancing the budget. Uh, so I look at uh, I look at this maybe from a different view. And my politics don't enter into this. I'm a fundraiser, and that's what I look at and the impact that this has on philanthropy. Uh, I also was part of a team from the London School of Economics 
that did a European tour uh, eight years ago after the Obama administration. And uh, my role was to talk about the impact of Obama's uh, policies uh, having to do with the redistribution of wealth in America and uh, and uh, wealth wealth growth in America, and that was a that was a whole different perspective on what it might do to wealth growth in America, creation of wealth in America, because the the philanthropic climate in America, as we've known for the last 75 years, has been based on the growth of wealth. Uh, so when you have a more socialistic environment being created, will that impact philanthropy? The answer is yes. So when you have a capitalist in the White House and who likes the concept of, of wealth creation and more laissez-faire in the corporate area and encourages wealth creation, is that good for philanthropy? Well, some people will say, yes, it is. Um, so you have these different views coming into the White House but then you have some of the policies that they put into play that seem to be contradicting that um, in some ways. You have charities that are benefiting from the fact that there may be uh, budget cuts on the federal side, and the benefit is if you look at things like Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood has never raised as much money in its history as it's just raised. Or the ACLU. Or the ACLU. Um, I talked to Planned Parenthood chief fundraiser, Barbara Bush, now the other day in Los Angeles. They've had record crowds, record money being raised. Uh, Barbara Dervecki in, uh, in uh, southern uh, Florida, never I went to their dinner the other night, never raised as much money in the history of Planned Parenthood as they've raised now. And their concept is we're going independent. We're not going to need federal money in the next seven years. We're going to go independent. We're going to do this thing. That's an interesting evolutionary thing in the history of some of these ideas that are saying, you know what, we, maybe we ought to be independent of federal support and not worry about the whims of whoever happens to be sitting in government. That's, a, that's a, another, another effect or impact of what might be going on in the White House. Uh, so two things that we find in the USA drive philanthropy, and now I'm going to be quiet, but... You ask me, so I'll tell you. Two things seem to drive philanthropy if you look at a 40-year perspective. One, for particularly for the uh, for the middle and lower donor, and that is employment. When employment is up, or the or the perception that employment will be up, uh, middle and lower donors, smaller donors give in America. Uh, when employment is not so good or the threat of employment, un unemployment is there, middle and lower donors don't give as much or they drop completely out of the marketplace. The other thing that drives major and mega giving is the equities market, and that's our stock market, which is the most volatile market in the world. That's why the investors from all over the world come here. When somebody comes up with a good idea for investment and a prospectus, they don't go to the German market or the Italian market. They come here because it's volatile. They can make a lot of money on this market. But when that market is driving and going like it has been, and we have a bull market here, and smart people think it's going to go for at least another two years to the midterm elections, fundraising and capital and endowment fundraising is very strong and robust, and the Trump administration, the Trump election, and the optimism that that he brought in, whether it's founded or not, the optimism that he brought in is driving a very robust fundraising market right now. So in terms of 
the day-to-day work that we do in philanthropy, politics aside, is actually pretty good for fundraising right now. That's an interesting yeah. approach. You know, uh, the the um, the look at that. Um, when you read the articles, you go, "Oh my gosh!" Uh, things like Planned Parenthood and ACLU, they're they're under pressure. They're under uh, attack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and uh, and maybe in the in the watershed of their history. They will look back and go, that was a time when we actually were able to become fully independent because people really rallied. Yeah. And, uh, it, and so right, you know, the rightness or wrongness of that is another issue. That's in a box over here. The, the fact of the matter is that they're raising more money than ever. And there are a number of causes that are, are, uh, you know, people who love those causes. The advocates are, uh, are rallying to causes now because they feel threatened. And uh, that's, you know, you can look at it in either way. Now, you know, ultimately, in my history here, looking at a 40-plus year history in philanthropy is, as well as aligning it with politics is this pendulum is going to, the next president, no matter how soon they come in, is going to find the middle again. Because I think what we've, what we've had is we had what was perceived to be a so, more socialist uh, president under the Obama two-term administration, uh, and now we've gone to the populists in the other direction. And the next, the next presidency will probably be more like the Clinton, who found the middle uh, during huh. the presidency. And, and that's usually historically the way these patterns go in the U.S. Hmm. Sharon, I'm curious. I know you've got a lot to, to say, um, but, but where, where do you sit on all of this? Uh, thanks, Bob. That was fantastic. Well, I've looked at it a little differently. And, um, <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've looked at it more from the perspective of the world position uh, that the U.S. has or has been abdicating. And uh, it has to do with the concept of philanthropy where it is uh, using the Oxford Dictionary, the desire to promote the welfare of others expressed especially by the generous donation of money to good causes. And when you take a look at some of the budget cuts that um, are being proposed um, by the Trump administration and you see where those those budget cuts are coming, um, what we're seeing um, what we're seeing are uh, countries that are struggling with famine, we're seeing um, issues related to health such as aid, AIDS in Africa. We're seeing diplomacy activities that are occurring in Eastern Bloc countries. And, uh, and so if that money all dries up, my question is who takes, who takes over? And so what we're seeing is countries like China and Russia moving in to create greater influence in places like Africa, as an example, as the U.S. literally abdicates its, uh, its role on the, uh, on the world front. And I think what it's done is it's really diminishing um, how countries look at it. It's being uh, viewed as, as less important because they have become so internalized and so self-serving in terms of the America First concept. So that's, I think, that's yeah, concerning. and I think that's a role. Yeah, and I think that's you know, and again, I think the definition of philanthropy, you know, in terms of the, you know. Who, who philanthropy applies to is that the role of government to be philanthropic on a global basis. I think that's where foreign policy comes into play. And, 
you know, the the U.S. There's no question. I think there's a pullback on U.S. foreign policy and where it's applied. Uh, traditionally, U.S. foreign policy has been applied most generously where U.S. has an interest, whether it was oil or whether it was you know, our interventions have been fairly selective. Uh, the global, the NGO global charities, and one of our clients, we do a lot of work with the UNICEFs and um, with uh, World Visions and Children International and those kinds of things. And they they are playing an even larger role uh, with USAID uh, support and stepping up actually in place of some of the USAID support roles there. I think that's a that political positioning. Uh, whether I don't know how we define philanthropy in terms of government tax dollars. Uh, that's a political government tax dollars are usually seen as a tool in the positioning of the U.S. Uh, political interests rather than philanthropy by a lot of people here. So that's right. where I think it gets a little mushy they, in there for a lot of people. They refer to that though as soft—it's soft power, right? soft diplomacy. Yeah, I know. Soft I'm diplomacy, familiar right? With it. And I yeah. think I think that is very, very important um, because if there is no soft diplomacy from, say, the U.S. or Canada or whoever's going to step into that, um, what we're going to find is there's going to be other countries, and pretty soon they're yeah. going to hold uh, a real grip on a lot of things yeah. that are happening. There was a very good article here, um, and it's written by, this is the Globe and Mail, it was written by Robert Rotberg, and the very final statement that he made in his article says, um, millions of people, numbers that boggle comprehension, could die because wealthy governments with food-secure populations seem too ready to focus mostly on themselves and neglect the needs of the world's less, less privileged. Now, that could be internally as well as externally, when you look at some of the issues that, say, the U.S. has been struggling with, or Canada in terms of poverty here, the, some of the issues that we deal with. But I think, personally, when I take a look at what's happening globally in the world, and I see the autocrats, and I see the dictators, and I see the U.S. stepping back from playing a strong and positive role, that it's going to impact very negatively uh, in a lot of areas, and it's not going to be good on the on in the long term um and it could uh, result in some very negative things but i think when you take away the opportunity to help others whether the reason is you know for for political reasons or whatever else i think there's a lot of philanthropists in the united states that give money because it's beneficial to their taxes which really isn't a whole lot different and i do think that when you start you start diminishing your responsibility because whether you're a socialist or you're a capitalist or whatever else, there is a responsibility, and uh, I think that's um, that's really um, can be very catastrophic. And I think, yeah, and I think our our withdrawal as and I say our collectively here in the U.S. I think the U.S. leadership position around the world began before Trump took office. I think you look at uh, our repositioning in terms of being kind of the lead police person in the world um, took took a different stance under the Obama administration than it had under Bush and under others and even under Clinton. Uh, so there's been a withdrawal of the United States as feeling responsible for policing the world or being first in even before the UN or, or anybody else uh, took action. 
in human rights and other areas. So I think there's been a general withdrawal over the last, and now it's, uh, you know, nine years, beginning the ninth year of that kind of more isolationist, uh, et cetera. And now you're looking at, uh, that, that was in, ter- in financial now as well as, uh, in terms of, uh, force, troops, boots on the ground, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. So I think there's been a retrenchment, uh, in general that started, uh, before Trump took office and now it's financial as well. Uh, I don't think, I don't think it's realistic to think that the U.S. can continue to I was in a, uh, uh, in working with the royal family of Qatar for a number of years for Shikamosa for a, uh, an education fund. I was at a dinner over there in a private home in Qatar. <clears throat> and I had people in the room from Brazil, from Lebanon, from, uh, Saudi Arabia, Palestine, et cetera. And it's a relatively small group, but, after dinner, tradition is that you have a conversation, and it's always political. You can't be in that part of the world and have it not. And this was uh, three years ago, and I asked the group to if we could go around the room and have everyone comment on the U.S. political, U.S. foreign policy. And uh, there, that was the joke of the evening three years ago. Everyone burst into laughter because there was <laughs> there was no identifiable policy that anyone from any of those countries could identify for the U.S. at that particular time in terms of how they might respond to anything. Nobody could identify our position on anything that might go on in the world at that point in time, which was pretty telling about where we were headed. So now we have an extension of it in another crazy way in terms of now we're going to isolate even more. And in a a bit of a different way, it's financial, but in – at that point in time, there was no definition of our foreign policy because lines had been drawn in the sand, and we we didn't uh, we didn't stick to that. So there was no definition back then. So, so I want to I want to hear from Jocelyn just for for a few minutes, if I could. So Jocelyn, I I, uh, I, I knew I would get to you. This conversation is fascinating. Um, so wh- wh- what's your take? Well, I'd like to sort of respond and maybe add a little bit to what each um, Bob and, and uh, Sharon have said. So, you know, just you know, Bob, you you talked about uh, you know what what you know drives philanthropy and, and employment and equities and and essentially, you know, what I have heard, you might be more familiar with this than me, is that you know, essentially, philanthropy has not grown in 100 years. It is two percent of GDP. It is in yeah. the United States. Yeah. So if GDP yeah. goes up, fundraising goes up. If GDP yeah. it goes slides up, right with it. Yeah. Yep. So you know, to me, uh, at the end of the day, fundraising is probably going to be relatively static because, you know, as society gets wealthier, you know, there's it's, it's uh, often you know what's the cause of poverty? You know, what's the root cause of poverty? Is that people aren't prosperous? So if provided that wealth is spread evenly, which unfortunately I think it is not, then, you know, it's a rising tide lifts all boats, and so you have often will have fewer problems. So, you know, I really look at this and, and look at this idea that, yes, there might be more philanthropy right now because GDP seems to be growing in the short term, but is, is yeah. really what's happening is only a shifting of deck, deck, deck chairs. 
you know, more money is going to plan parenting, parenthood, but at the end of the day, if there is a limited amount of philanthropy, who's not getting money? What about those arts organizations? What about some of the the uh you know difficult to uh, support organizations around violence against women which in the end is is such an important part of making a healthy society because you know as i said at the beginning to me philanthropy is only a means to an end the end game is a prosperous inclusive uh healthy happy world that you know enables everyone to be part of it in a way that you know, allows them to live the life that everybody, there is enough in the world. There is enough for everybody. It's just that we are not sharing it and we are not looking at it in a way, in, in a way that looks at it from a bigger picture point of view. And, and I agree with you in terms of what you were saying about Trump has really maybe just an addition to the fact that America was pulling back. Well, I think Trump is more than a reflection of America just pulling back in isolation. It's really relating directly to the fact that we've got this 1%, you know, that is benefiting more than anybody else in the world. And that, you know, so that these people who sort of felt, well, we'll bring back Trump because, you know, he's going to have coal come back and there'll be more jobs. Well, you know, that stuff is gone. And I remember hearing Steve Jobs being having a discussion with Obama, and Obama saying to him, "How do we bring those high tech jobs back to America?" And he looked at him and he said, "You know, those jobs aren't coming back. They're never coming so, back. They're gone. They are never coming back." So, you know, I think, and you know, so I, I look at this and I think philanthropy is not even necessarily the answer here. We need a real rethink on the way in which the world works. And raising more money for Planned Parenthood, which I think is awesome, is only, you know, affecting one part of a bigger of a bigger issue. And you know, Sharon, you you talked about the world position and, and Africa, and, and my husband chairs globally the International Standards Organization Environmental Management Standards, and we've traveled all over the world. And going to Africa, I see, you know, who who's there actually raising the the level of, of poverty in Africa. It's the Chinese, and it is not through philanthropy. It is by economic growth and inclusive right. growth that allows That's local exactly people right. to get a job. So yeah. I, I look at things like philanthropy, and I really say, is that truly the answer? And, you know, is this whole, you know, Trump and everything else actually just pushing us to start to say, we we have to do this all differently. And so that's why I look at the power of partnerships as being, you know, more important, of, you know, collaboration, more coming together and working together around these bigger issues, not just shuffling the deck with money. And and even mergers of nonprofits and, and you know, organizations saying we've got to be bigger than ourselves, we've got to be yeah. bigger than just yeah, those big funders. We have to truly as a as a society look at how we operate differently. I, I would agree I agree, Jocelyn. I I think um I talk about the three ways to solve big problems all the time and, and we're kind of focused on philanthropy as a topic here today, but you know, the the catalytic part of solution is often philanthropy because it takes chances. And and I, I use that as the beginning. Because it'll try for a solution where government and business doesn't often. Uh, it'll take a risk. Then we need government 
we need a, a receptive government for uh, for two things. I think number one to create a civil society in which you can bring solution, and secondly, set times for scaling a for scaling a solution because governments have money. They have more money than than philanthropy has. Philanthropy doesn't have enough money to solve problems in the long term. And then there's business. And you mentioned China and, you know, job creation is brought about by business. And that's where, you know, some of the catalytic part of that, in my experience, is microfinance and other solutions. But if you create an economy around a solution, you've got a sustainable solution. And philanthropy is plays a minor role in getting that started. But those three parts I talk about all the time as being the solution to big problems on a global basis. And it's not competitive. It is purely collaboration that gets those those things solved. When you look at Africa, when you look at Indonesia, when you look at the Latin American huge – I just got back from Honduras and looking at the uh, area development programs of World Vision, and that's how they solve regional problems in those parts of the world. They're complicated. They're complicated. They're not simple yeah. solutions through philanthropy. And I and I and I'm really happy to hear you say that. And I'm equally happy to hear that you're actually on the selection committee for the next CEO of AFP. And uh, last uh, June, I thought there was a very dynamic and exciting letter. I think it was written by Jason Lee, who's the interim CEO, talking mm-hmm. about how AFP has to be more that has to be about more than philanthropy. Yeah. And yep. so I really hope that the new CEO. Uh, that you choose looks at some of these other ways that, you know, philanthropy is, as you say, such a small part and, and cannot solve the problems. And nope. so if if we're really looking at that, you know, we have problems bigger today than what we had 10 years ago with food insecurity, even in the United States, here in Canada with, you know, inclusivity. I look I was at a conference with Vince where they were talking about how do we engage First Nations and and do it in a way that isn't just about philanthropy. We've poured money into those First Nations communities, and it hasn't changed a thing. So money actually can be a problem, not a solution. It's about thinking. Some of those like some of those First Nations though are also very wealthy themselves, and they haven't done yeah. as much as they could. So no, I think that true. one of the, one of the points that I was making earlier about um, government funding, <clears throat> there was a big article in the Boston. Um, Boston Globe about all of the defunding that's going to be going on. And when you mentioned um, prosperity by creating jobs, one of the groups is the U.S. African Development Foundation. And uh, their goal is creating pathways to prosperity uh, for underserved communities in Africa. And again, the dollars that are coming in there are coming at a point where they are trying to establish something more positive. And your comment as well, Jocelyn, about amalgamating some of the charities coming together. I see that as an option as well in the states where um, more needs to be done and you've got people or organizations with a common mission and what they're doing is they're um, diffusing the opportunity to get more funding because they've got uh, competing uh, yeah. competing organizations. Yeah. It's but so difficult. That, that collaboration, I just speak from my history with it, and I've tried to force some collaboration with various parts of the U.S. segmented uh, uh, charities. And, you know, it's interesting because it works 
I've gotten it very often with senior staff to the right levels, and then it breaks down at the board levels because the identity well, of board members associated with these charities is so strong that they push back on the collaboratives. I mean, it's just remarkable that the ultimate top leaders often are the ones who are the difficulty in, in, in the joining together. It's just so, you know, and I think really being philanthropic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would say that like philanthropy, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, certainly in Canada, which people were kind of like starting to experiment with, you know, partnerships are hard work. And, you know, yep. as we worked and we trained people around how do you do philanthropy, how do you create a culture of philanthropy in an organization, we need to do the same thing with around partnerships, around collaboration, and we need more training. We need more emphasis on creating a culture of partnerships. So I'm involved in a global organization, Vince knows, called the Partnership Brokers Association, and, yeah. and that's what our goal is, is actually to support all sectors thinking differently about the idea of partnership and, and what that means. Partnership, to me, is one of the most overworked words, that everybody's a partner, when in fact it isn't the case at all. So we need to start thinking about how do we train people, how do we give them new language and shared understanding, and, and the recognition that this is truly the only path forward. Well, I'm not the least bit surprised at the quality of conversation that we're having here. And, um, and I, I knew, in fact, I'm pretty sure we could have multiple podcasts on just this topic. And in fact, we might. But I'm also sensitive to your time and to the time of the podcast. So I want to, um, to, to start to, to wrap it up. And we're gonna, we're not gonna talk about some news items today, but I just want to, 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 to go around the table and, and thank each of you for, for taking part today, but and also to, to give you each a chance to talk a little bit more about, um, uh, tell us a little more about what you're up to, what you care about, and what's going on. So, um, it, you know, I, I, want, I want each of you to do that. I'll start first with you, Sharon. Anything you want our listening audience to know? Is there a Twitter handle? Is there something really cool that's going on in your life? What do you want to, what do you want to sure, tell us? Sure, sure. Um, we're, um, I'm going to be participating with the Canadian Institute in Vancouver, um, around the, I think it's the 20, 25th, uh, of, of April. And they're going to be talking about different issues. And one of the issues that is very strong for me as a donor is I want to know the organizations that I donate to are utilizing the funds capably. And part of what we do is, uh, with my company is we have the concept of the knowledge driven charity because what we've seen and experienced over 30 years working with charities is there's an enormous amount of chaos out there. And what it does is it diminishes time, it increases stress, and uh, and the outcomes are never as satisfactory as they could. And, the, of course, you've got staff turnover and all kinds of things that are um, the result of that. So we're very interested in seeing charities work more like a business, play it a little bit smarter, pay their salaries, pay salaries that are worthy of the work that they do, and um, as part of that, our software at ease collaborates with all that concept so that time is uh, is utilized more successfully. But that is a, a big concern of mine. And one of the things that I noted through the research I was doing was that foundations are starting to realize that more funding for leadership training and operational costs is important. 
And um, I, I don't think that uh, somebody can be a leader of a, an organization simply because they've come up to the ranks. They actually have to have some skills to do it with some expectations um, on behalf of the charity itself. And um, eCharity News has a new article out that um, – or Hillborn eCharity News – and it's, I called it Where's Waldo? And it has to do with finding information. They had to change the title. But, um, I'm very, very keen on helping the groups that we work with work more successfully because it helps the outcomes of the people that they themselves help. Thanks. Okay. Sharon Batch in Edmonton. Thank you. Jocelyn, what's going on? I think the most important thing in your life right now is the new grandbaby coming. But what else? Well, that's, or, that's, or, that's, or that. Yes. Well, you know, and Sharon, I, I really love what you were saying about capacity building and, and helping leaders in the nonprofit sector, you know, build their skills and, and knowledge. And, you know, when you chatted earlier uh, about, you know, the importance of mergers and coming together. And so, you know, the work that I'm involved in is, and, and, and I also really like what you said, Bob, about, you know, philanthropy being sort of that risk money, that money that can kind of often help organizations start to think a little differently. Um, but what I'm really focusing my efforts on is how do we move from philanthropy to actually so looking at how we solve problems and social problems and doing it at scale. And while philanthropy, you know, as you said, Bob, is, is often a, a good first start to provide some risk money, it is absolutely not going to be enough, and we need to start thinking differently. And so the work that I do is really around that idea of how do you help organizations understand how to partner and not these kind of forced marriages where, you know, people are told you've got a partner, where you actually really sit down and you try to, you know, come together in a way that's around a shared vision. Each organization might have different goals, but you're really working together to try at scale to solve a bigger problem. And, you know, so we do a lot of work in that partnership space, both in terms of training, in terms of coaching, in terms of helping to develop partnerships that are getting the right people at the table who want to be there, who have some training and skills to understand how to do it. And IBM just recently came out with a with a, a, a paper which looked at, you know, what are the skills that we need in the future. And the number one skill that they're looking for and is required is boundary spanning. People who can span across boundaries within their own organization, across boundaries outside of their organization, and look at the power of working in, a, in you know, effectively breaking down silos. So that's a big part. Uh, I'm also involved in the global shared value work, which looks at the power of business and using business models to address social and environmental issues at scale. And so those are my big areas of focus and interest. I do a lot of training with the partnership brokers, which I mentioned. My Twitter handle is at Jocelyn Daw, and our website is jsdaw.com. So, um, you know, we work with all sectors to help them think differently about solving problems. Thanks. Jocelyn Daw in Calgary. Bob, what about you? What do you want to tell us? What do we need to know? Um, let's see, my son's lacrosse team's playing for a regional championship tomorrow night. Other All right. That, um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I love that. I'm just thrilled to, to, to be a part of this. I'm really delighted to uh, have this conversation with these uh, wonderful Canadian professionals. Um, you know, our, our business is driven by the, uh, you know, our, our intense desire to make this world a better place. And, 
working out in the world as we do. And uh, we're working in nine different countries now currently, and uh, and seeing the differences uh, that uh, the different approaches to philanthropy is just. Uh, wonderful because there are these core values that we see everywhere where people want to make the world a better place and the, the commonality of that is just uh rewarding the hearts of the hearts of people are just wonderful to work with uh my particular area is in dealing i'm spending a lot of time these days dealing with new CEOs and board chairs the special relationship that they can have to make uh the culture of philanthropy better and their specific roles in it uh, particularly new CEOs coming into their roles without a background in philanthropy and getting them to understand how they can make or break the organization. And, in fact, I put it in terms of making or breaking their careers, uh, and then it gets personal. Uh, we go from there. Um, our organization is is kind of a high-impact group. You know, We have a minimum uh, requirement of 15 years of consulting before you join our group. Um, and uh, we don't do any training or anything. We're, this is my retirement company. I started it seven years ago after being the CEO of Ketchum and working all over the world for a long time, and uh, we have a lot of fun doing what we do. Uh, the humanitarian work that we do with the UN uh, agencies and some of those special groups is particularly uh, rewarding these days, and that's where we see the possibilities of changing the world uh, through Latin America and uh, Middle East and uh, other parts of the world. So it's, this is a, a great uh, sector to work in, and all three of us, four of us, or five of us involved here are among the fortunates who do that. So thanks for, for inviting me. Well, thank you, Bob. I'm just curious, uh, one of your comments was about uh, these CEOs uh, coming into philanthropy without a background in philanthropy. Is that a, a trend or has that always been the case or, or what's 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 the deal? Well, there? I think it's I think it's always been the case. I mean uh there are a lot of uh well CEOs get hired for we don't know why reasons sometimes. And uh uh but more programmatically the, there are a lot of nonprofits who bring people up uh through the program ranks and uh you know they have the confidence to manage the, the program thrust of the agency and meet mission and that sort of thing. But philanthropy has been a – maybe they played a more minor role in philanthropy, but now they're responsible for the whole enterprise and letting them know that now they're the person that the major or mega donors want to look into the eye and know that they're going to spend the money and uh, and meet out the whole vision and let them understand that they're now responsible for philanthropy ultimately. Uh, and Thanks. they've maybe never had that role before. Great, thanks for that clarity. Yep. The um, when we when we thought about the topic for today's show, uh, you know, it came up. It, it seemed appropriate. It was something good to hang on. But I also suspected that it wasn't all going to be uh, he's crazy and the world's ending. And I was so happy that we got. Uh, there's a little bit of that, uh, but there's also the counterpoint to that. So it was really great to hear both sides of that today, and 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 really be thoughtful about the role of philanthropy. And also recognizing that philanthropy can't solve everything, but they are first to market often and, and that can really make a difference. So I want to thank each of you for joining us on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. Any closing thank comments you, before? Yeah. Anything, anything anyone wants to add? Well, I think, I think philanthropy is socialist in its, um, in its leanings and I, I think it's a good thing to look after people in need or that have issues. I I am a capitalist myself, but I 
definitely would never um, feel that I wouldn't want to be um, a strong supporter of people in need, as as I'm Great. sure the other folks on this panel are as well. I would well, say, let them say that. If you're sitting at yeah. your desk, uh, you should have a sign on it that says, no fundraising happens here. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, Thanks, raise Bob. Money. I, raise I fundraise money. every day, but on a, yeah. on a for-profit level. <laughs> Jocelyn, did you have any closing comments? Uh, any no, any witty repartee? No, but uh, thank you so much for including me, and it was just a a delight to hear your insights, Bob, from an American perspective and all your global work perspective, and Sharon, you as well. I mean, uh, I think our paths have crossed a couple of times, but it was really nice to spend some time and, you know, hear your perspectives, and I was humbled to be part of the discussion, so thank you. Well, thank you all for participating. um, We're hoping to have uh, folks come back on occasion, so... Um, you know, if we reach out and you're available, we'd love to have you come back. We're going to try and do this uh, uh, once a month, uh, maybe even uh, more often. We'll see how it goes. This is our second one. And with that, I say thank you. On behalf of Fitrail, thank you so much for taking time. That's a wrap. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will tune in next month when our panel will include Jane Potentier, a senior fundraiser at the University of Alberta, Sherilyn Hale, former chair of CFRE International and principal at Watermark Consulting in Toronto, Tom Berkoff, a fundraising consultant from Edmonton, and my business partner, Evitreo, and former chair of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, Andrea McManus. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta, Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.